And you're listening to 3RRR with Amy Mullins, the show here, Uncommon Sense, and we're with you till noon. Um, We have had some pretty cracking interviews so far, if I do say so myself, um, with great, great women. Now we thought we'd better add a man in. uh, And who better to talk to than Owen Harsey? Uh, Owen is a film director, among many other things. He also works at the University of Melbourne. Um, And he has come in to chat with us about the film he's made uh, and directed. It's called Michael, They've Shot Them. And uh, it's about Australian history, one of my other pet topics. So I'm really looking forward to delving into the uh, various events that this film covers and uh, also why we're talking about it now. So welcome, Owen. Thanks very much, Amy. And um, thanks for joining us. So this film, uh, which I happened to see last year, and I think, did that did the showing um, commemorate any particular event then? Yeah, it was shown last year at the State Library of Victoria and the University of Melbourne um, because basically it was 100 years since um, Ireland's Easter Rising of 1916. This is a pivotal moment in Irish history, to be honest with you. It was a really poor rising. It was a failed rising. For six days, the Irish rebels took over Dublin, but it was a pivotal moment in the formation of the Irish modern state. Definitely. And so that's what the film opens with. It talks about um, Easter Monday, uh, which is in 1916, when a group of men and women seized buildings across Dublin. And what their aim was, um, was to create an Irish Republic. And for people who aren't quite up to scratch on their um, British and Irish history, what who was governing Ireland at the time? Yeah, so Ireland was governed for only 700 years at that stage by uh, by by the British, by the English forces, and, and Dublin Castle was the seat of British power, basically. So the Irish rebels um, in secret led a rising. It was supposed to be on Easter Sunday, but it actually had to be changed because of some internal politics, as usual. <laughs> and um, it went ahead on Easter Monday, but it failed. They had hoped that the whole of Ireland would rise up in revolt against the English, but actually only they rose up in a small part of Dublin, even in the city centre of Dublin. And even Irish people reacted badly to the rising when they, when they were brought out when the rising failed actually the Irish people abused those who were in the rising because they destroyed the centre of Dublin Mm. but it was what happened after that it was when the English executed the leaders of the rising that led to a really growth in Irish nationalism both um, in Ireland and it had an impact on the other side of the world here in Australia. Yeah and so you talk about um, this armed rebellion which was six days and yeah as you say pretty failed Um, it also had supplies from uh, Germany which uh, was Britain's enemy in World War One, and as as the film shows, uh, World War One is the backdrop um, of which these events occur, and it was seen as treasonous um, to to be undertaking such an act um, during uh, World War One when Britain was under fire. What is the reason why? Um, the Irish had such a negative reaction to these um, rebels who decided to, you know, rise up. Were the were the rebels impatient with the the um, I guess prospect of change because there was some move towards Irish home rule, which isn't the same as being independent. Could you kind of share a bit of that? Yeah, there was Irish people in a way kind of had been slumbering into accepting their part as being part of the British Empire and home rule, which is a form of self self government, was promised to the Irish and. 
a lot of the Irish were, were kind of you know taking this on and believing this could, this could be what 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 they should have, similar to what Australia had under the British Empire. But the Irish rebels, who weren't huge in number, they didn't want this. They wanted an independent Irish republic. And you have, have to remember at this time, this was the only superpower primarily in the world at the time. So they decided to rise against it and to, to really, they knew they were going to fail, but they wanted to ignite Irish nationalism and to stop that slumber, to mm. say, no, we are not going to be a colony of the British Empire. We are going to stand on our own two feet. And yes, they did bring in guns from Germany. And just like up the north, the Unionists also brought in guns as well. Um, the guns from Germany were caught. It was actually females who actually brought in the guns on the Asgard and the Hoth who brought it in into Dublin at the time and they were some of the leading gun runners for, for the Irish rebels at the time. Interesting. So women played um, just an equal role in this in this rebellion? Absolutely. Um, Countess Markovich was one of the leaders. She was the leaders of one of the um, rebellion squadrons but interestingly in history as, as history goes along some of the women's roles were actually removed from it. There's Eileen O'Farrell there's a famous photograph that was taken outside the GPO, the general post office where the Irish rebels surrendered and um, Podrick Pierce was the leader but beside him was actually Eileen Farrell but you can't see her because the direction of the shot was taken and they actually believe she might have been um, <laughs> early photoshopped taking out the photograph because they wanted the narrative to be Podrick Pierce and she was actually one of the people who went with Podrick Pierce to surrender to the English forces. And how inconvenient to have women <laughs> as part of that <laughs> typical mm-hmm. um, and really then you look at um, the, I guess these men who are the martyrs because they're shot um, and as the film shows well you know they're given a soldier's death um, which really reinforces the whole point um, of what they were saying which is they're independent they're island soldiers not Britain's soldiers um, you know and these women obviously who were part of the rebellion weren't shot so what happened to them? So yeah the, the British took a really bad decision there in actually shooting the, the leaders of the execution they made them martyrs and they made them Irish martyrs in our history in the narrative of, of our history you go back to our history Wolf Tone all these leaders and by executing these leaders they created those heroes and a whole groundswell of opinion rose up and support rose up around them and probably the most one that would go on to be the father of the Irish state was Eamon de Valera who wasn't executed because he actually had um, an American passport his, um, his mother was American so um, they actually by executing those leaders really ignited the Irish nationalism and, and that's what the rebels wanted to happen Yeah and um, and the women were pr- imprisoned or They were imprisoned, the women were imprisoned and, and actually some of them were, were, were let go Countess Markovich got some prison but she was released and she would go on to actually play a role in the, in the formation of the Irish Parliament in, in later years. Interesting So then we talk about um, you know this uh, martyrisation of um, these, how many men were there that, that were shot? There was 12 12, shot, yeah. yeah so these men have been shot, um, you know, it really, as you say, brings out really fervent nationalism. Meanwhile, and that's in Ireland, meanwhile in Australia, um, you know, there's plenty of Irish Catholics uh, who have immigrated to Australia. What was the proportion um of Catholics who were Irish in Australia at that time. Yeah, you're looking at a quarter of the population, really. The Irish Catholics were the first serious, first significant 
ethnic group that immigrated to Australia by will or by not um, and you're looking at that early years of the 20th century and just to see, you know you're going into the time when Australia as you know today the modern Australia was forming you had that tension between Catholic and Protestant you had the old world being brought into this new world here so tensions were, were being created and then all you needed was, was, a, was a first world war which happened at that time so that really stirred up the sectarian pot in particular and looking at allegiances and if the Catholics were loyal to the, to the British forces, you know. Yeah, and in Australia, the film shows that a lot of uh, Irish Catholics were pro-home rule, um, which I guess you could say is the more moderate position. Um, and then, as you say, uh, the, there becomes this great indignancy um, in Australia, in as shown in the documentary, that people are disappointed and angered by these um, men and women who have been impatient, decided to um, take it all uh, with both hands and change things. Um, it, it's a failure. What uh, becomes the response in Australia in general to this um, event? Uh, you, you talk about the, the newspapers and you show the headlines. How, what kind of level of diversity of views and um, were at, in Australia at the time amongst the Irish Catholics in terms of home rule versus independence? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because before the execution of the 1916 leaders, Irish Australians really believed in home rule. They really followed that. There's a fabulous historian called um, Val Noon here in Melbourne who's done a lot of work into Nicholas O'Donnell and, and he was the leader of the Irish-Australian um, Catholic community at the time and he was um, really believed in our Ireland should have home rule. So the, the Irish-Australians followed that belief. But the execution of the leaders and the entry of Daniel Mannix, Archbishop Mannix, into the equation really destroyed... Um, that movement towards home rule from the Irish Australians and many Irish Australians and Nicholas Donnell and others, their sons had gone to fight in the First World War. So they fully supported the British aims and they fully supported the home rule movement. But the changes of the geopolitical events in the First World War, the executions of the leaders and Archbishop Daniel Mannix, his role in particular, um, really changed the Irish Australian sentiment towards one that wanted an independent Ireland from, from Britain. Yeah, and then you mention here um, Archbishop Daniel Mannix, who is a very charismatic and um, famous character, should be more famous than he is, to be honest. Um, and he really um, comes to prominence in Melbourne. I mean, he's already prominent within his own community. He's um, at St. Mary's in West Melbourne. Um, but he, uh, he comes from Ireland to Australia. And then when conscription comes up as a big issue in World War One, we have two plebiscites on conscription, uh, one in October in 1916 and then another in December in 2017. That's when he really gets in his stride. And and I guess the reason behind the title is quite revealing. I'll let you kind of discuss um, that. And as I, as I mentioned, it's called Michael, They've Shot Them. Um, what does this have to do with Daniel Mannix? Yeah, Mannix is a fascinating character. I sometimes think we Irish have an unhealthy fascination with Daniel <laughs> Mannix, to be quite honest. I think there's like nine books written about Daniel Mannix. But I didn't know about Daniel Mannix before I came to Ireland. I'm in this country five years and, and, and just touched upon it. I read um, Brendan Niles' book on Mannix, recent book on Mannix. And there was one line in that that said the executions of the, of the leaders of the 1916 Rising moved Daniel Mannix. And I went, there's a story here. There's absolutely a story that hasn't been told in Australia and definitely hasn't been told in Ireland because Mannix came here to be the archbishop, to be the leader of the Irish flock. Um, 
and when that execution occurred, he wasn't so much involved in politics in Australia. He was a bit in terms of education for funding for schools, but not so much. But when the execution happened, he actually turned, and this is in Brenda's book, he turned to his caretaker in, in St. Mary's, as, as you mentioned, and said, Michael, they've shot them. And he weeped as he said it. Um, it. It moved him. It had an emotional effect on him. And from that point, you could see that he waded deeper into Australian political waters. And he became more vocal in the debate on conscription, stating that it was Australia first that Australia should put its own um, values and principles first and not just be a colony of, of Britain. And as a, Patrick O'Farrell, probably the, the Dinsian of Irish history here in Australia, he says, this is a controversial one, but he says that um, Australia's identity was formed by the Irish, by this fact of rebelling against the British ascendancy and actually saying that you should put Australia first and not just be a colony of Britain. So Mannix really came in that and really stirred the pot in relation to that. Well, it's not really a traditional role for a Catholic archbishop, is it? <laughs> no, definitely not. But he was very good at it. He was brilliant yeah. at the speeches. Um, when, when I was reading on the history or, or research on it, he, uh, fets were a big thing back then, you know, and he used to go and speak at these fets. But he was um, he was a master of the soundbite and he really, like you're talking thousands, tens of thousands of people turning up to these rallies. That was the entertainment of the day. So, And he really knew, he was a really good orator and he used to practice actually in, in the cathedral in St. Patrick's of how to, how to lift his voice and how to project his voice. So he knew what he was doing and he practiced at it. So yeah, he knew the role he was playing. Yeah, and let's talk about, I guess, the substance of what he's saying and why he's saying it. So um, conscription was put forward by Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who was a character in himself, um, and he was uh, at the time the Labor Prime Minister in 1916, um, and that saw, I guess, the split of the Labor Party. And the film does um, kind of cover this, is the that the Labor Party did have quite a few Irish Catholics and it was almost dominated by Irish Catholics. And when the, uh, the Labor Party split over the issue of conscription, really Billy Hughes and uh, his Protestant uh, colleagues went off and created the Nationals and uh, and then Labor Party was really left to be a very radical and Irish Catholic party, um, which then when you see Daniel Mannix coming out and being so um, opposed to conscription, he really led the anti-conscription campaign in Australia. Um, this kind of I guess, tore at uh, progressive politics, didn't it? Yeah, it had a massive impact on the, on the trajectory of the Labour Party, that first split. And, and then if we just jump forward slightly, actually remember, Mannix would go on to mentor B.A. Santa Maria, who another generation would know, and the impact he would have the Labour Party in the split in 1955. And as I was doing the work on this documentary, Emma, more and more people, th- th- that split in 1955 is very emotional to a lot of people still to this day. They speak to it with a, with a, with a different tone. So that, in, and, and Mannix mentored Santa Maria, but yes, he had the early split back there. So he had a massive impact in terms of labour politics. He knew what he was doing. He was creating, I believe, and this is my opinion, an Irish-Australian Catholic force. And he was galvanising that opinion here. He came into a kind of a, a hostile environment that he d- wasn't expecting. He came from a different environment in Ireland, obviously, where Catholicism was dominant and he, he, he kind of he, he found his nationalism here and he found that he could he was going to forge a Catholic force in Australia. Yeah because let's look at I guess where Ireland and the Irish come into anti-conscription because um, a lot of I mean when we look at the conscription campaigns there was a fairly clear divide between Protestants who were not always but generally pro-conscription and then Catholics who were anti-conscription and then as you say lots of those Catholics were Irish um, who were born in Ireland or of Irish descent you know there was there were reasons why it was Daniel Mannix who was leading that 
discussion and also why nationalism, Irish nationalism and Australian nationalism was tied into those campaigns. Can you pick apart, I guess, for us, the the kind of inherent, the nationalisms that were part of that anti-conscription campaign that, that Daniel Mannix was touching on and I guess, did it reach, um, what was the back and forth between Ireland and Australia within this? Yeah, so Ireland was still kind of forming into its its present day stage at that time, but Mannix really picked up on that nationalistic sentiments in terms of you should look out for Australia's own um, you know your own um, views first, or your own your own future first, basically. Um, Coming from an Irish perspective of being not independent from Britain, yeah, and that you should have seek more of an independence. You should go in your own way. At the time, Britain were looking for more and more men to fill a, a conveyor, a murder machine, basically in the First World War, and they were demanding um, more troops from from Australia at the time. And Mannix was calling question of that, and he wasn't mm. the only one. There was the Workers of the World. There was others involved in it, but he was kind of. The f- he was a very good figure. He was very good to speak in the public debates and that. But he really pushed that Australia having its own nationalism, its own identity, and really pushed that conversation forward to say, you should look after your own interests first before just um, supplying the needs of Britain in, in a war that, that doesn't mean anything to you, you know? Yeah, and it's pretty radical to do that because... Um in one of the first shows I ever did on Triple R, I interviewed Dr. Sean Scalmer, who uh, he was edited a, a book called The Conscription Conflict, uh, which came out at the end of last year. And he was saying how, you know, Australians had a British identity and an Australian identity. Um, and then I guess if you're Irish, you have a British, Irish, Australian identity. Um, and, you know, your comrades are of other nationalities um, because it was an immigrant nation, um, as well as your Indigenous um, friends who were sometimes not seen as friends um, when it came to World War One and, and them um, as soldiers. But uh, looking at, I guess, those, those competing or conflicting identities, going out and saying you should put Australia first is a pretty radical thing to do at that time. It seems really quite, well, of course, we'd put us first uh, nowadays, but people still saw themselves as um, dominions of the Queen. Yeah, look, I think at that period of history that we're talking the early 20th century and First World War here in Australia is a fascinating piece of history for Australia. You really got that, as you say, those tensions between the old world and new world, the identities and that fusing and the creating of a modern Australian identity as we know it today. Um, so it's a really, yeah, it's a really um, fascinating look at how it how it happened and, and Mannix coming in, into that and, and, and teasing it out and really kind of pushing the Australian identity is, is one that the documentary really kind of focuses on and looks at that Irish um, pressure in that time. And the documentary, it does have um, some pretty impressive thinkers. Um, And uh, if anyone is uh, into history and Irish history particularly, you'll get pretty excited with the lineup, not only because it's gender balanced, um, but because it's got really awesome people like Elizabeth Malcolm, who's a very prominent um, professor, uh, was at the University of Melbourne. And I think she's probably the star for me. If I had to pick a favourite, I don't like picking favourites, but she's pretty impressive. She's amazing, actually, and this, and just she's been so helpful to me as as I've gone along on this journey, um, you know, providing the insight, and she she plays a, a really strong role throughout the documentary. To be honest with you, look, there's one third I think of of, of Australians of Irish heritage. There's a this is um, a story that really I don't think has been fully told. I think history kind of lives too much in the dark places of our libraries. So we try to to bring that out and tell that story and bring history to new audiences. I'm part of that newer, more most recent generation that immigrated to to Australia, and as a whole 
whole swathe of us that haven't seen this before. But yeah, Elizabeth is one. Stuart McIntyre features on the documentary as well. Gillian Russell who is the former chair of History and Val, who I just mentioned. So there's a Brenda Nile, as you mentioned. Brenda, Brenda, Manics. yeah, Brenda. We're going to have to Brenda to our house one day and and moved a few uh, illegal traffic cones as we did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, it was um it was a pleasure making the documentary. But and we got some great buy-in from from um across across Melbourne and Victoria and Australia to it. You know, mm. yeah. and I guess the reason why you were so interested in this um, history is because of the Irish-Australia intersection and its little-known, um, I guess, fact in Australia, but also in Ireland. And you said uh, before that, or off-air, that the uh, the film has been shown in Ireland. What was the reception over in Ireland to the film? Yeah, the film was shown on the Irish national broadcaster, RTE, Radio Telefish Air, Amy. And uh, yeah, it got a really good, strong reaction um, because... To be honest, I think Ireland naval gazes at America too much. JFK, gangs in New York, popular culture, all that kind of thing. The Irish-Australian story is not so much told. Mm. And I'll be honest with you, there's a bit of, bit of, maybe there's a bit of embarrassment too because we're sent over here, Van Diemen's Land, all that history. So the history hasn't really been told um, back in Ireland. So it's a misunderstanding of the Australian-Irish relationship. And it's a really fascinating history for me. I love love history and just even small social history. I live in North Melbourne and even walking around there seeing the Irish names because that was the original home of the Irish when they came here. Um, for me, it's fascinating. So I think there's an absolute depth of stories to be told about the Irish-Australian experience. We've got a very strong reaction in Ireland. Etihad Airways have picked it up because they're ferrying the Irish from Ireland over here to Australia and, and they put it across their global fleet as well. So there's been a really good interest in it and um, we're hoping that we will have the same reaction here in Australia. Absolutely. Well, as we um, as we know, I just mentioned uh, earlier on that it's going to be on SBS One uh, and it's going to be on SBS One this weekend. This weekend at half five now, my friends in SBS, they wanted me to actually change the title to The Rise of Irish Australia. We had it as Michael, uh, they've shot them, is, is the Irish title, but they want to make it more translatable. So if you're looking right. for it in your in your set-top recorders, it's The Rise of Irish Australia. So Yes, very self-explanatory yes. there. Uh, it's at 5.35 and it goes for 45 minutes. It'll also be on SBS On Demand for about a month. Um, and I just want to close out with a really interesting quote, which I think it was Brenda Nile in the film uh, said, and um, and if anyone hasn't read Mannix by Brenda Nile, please do, because I think, did it win an award as well? Or, I think it was shortlisted. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it is a really amazingly written book. Um, and she says that uh, Daniel Mannix, and I guess the reason why people were so caught up with him and really um, got behind him was not just because he was, you know, the leader of the flock, you know, the Catholic flock in Australia and in Melbourne in particular, but also because of his personality and the way he approached heated debates. And I guess that he didn't really stoop to the level that sometimes our Prime Minister did at the time. And uh, and he Mannix said, according to Brendan Isle, that... Uh, and I quote, Mr. Hughes called me a liar, a traitor or rebel, but I always called him Mr. Morris Hughes. She's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant quote. And that, that duel between Mannix and uh, Hughes is fabulous. And I think Mannix really annoyed Hughes because he had yeah. those little kind of digs, you know? Totally. And if you're interested, uh, I did do a bit of a search a while back on the, I think it's the National Archives, and there are some seriously big dirt files on Daniel Mannix, um, which were created by the government to keep tabs on him because he was such a huge threat to their to their pro-conscription campaign. So there's some really interesting sources in 
in this period of history and I really hope people can check out this documentary and get into it. Yeah, there's not many archbishops have their ships surrounded by warships off the coast of Ireland as they're, as <laughs> when they're over there, but I think yeah. Yeah, it's a fabulous history. It is, it is. Thank you, Owen, for coming in and chatting with us about this documentary. It's called Michael, They've Shot Them. Um, you can search for it on Google too. What's the website people can check it out on? Uh, Michael1916.com. Great. So, yeah, have a look, get into it, get into some Australian history because it really is that interesting. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.